I am here with uh, George Ku. Uh, I'm going to let George introduce himself uh, a little bit in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, but we're, this is part three of a series uh, that I've done, the last part on the Meng Wanzhou case, uh, which is a case in which the Canadian government uh, kidnapped this uh, executive, the chief financial officer for Huawei, which is one of China's biggest companies, one of the biggest tech companies in the world. And uh, Meng Wanzhou was basically kidnapped. The United States is seeking extradition. Uh, and in the first part, I talked to KJ No about the legal aspects of this preposterous case, the arguments that the Americans and the Canadians have made uh, that claim that because Huawei has traded with Iran and Iran is under U.S. sanctions, that Meng Wanzhou can therefore be detained and extradited to the U.S. Um, because China and Iran are trading with each other. Two sovereign countries are trading with each other. Therefore, a third supposedly sovereign country can kidnap uh, one of those, a member of one of those countries. So we talked about the legal aspects. And then uh, in part two with Dan Freeman Malloy, I talked uh, about the history of Canadian racism specifically towards China and towards Chinese people going back to the 19th century and the so-called yellow peril and the continuities with what's going on today. Today, though, uh, with George, I wanted to talk about the business aspects and I wanted to talk about the technological aspects. And George is uniquely placed to do this because of his background in uh, going back and forth and trying to create more understanding between China and U.S. business communities. And, uh, and now he's a writer for the Asia Times. I'd highly recommend you check out his blog, um, and also his articles at Asia Time. So just look up George and then Ku K O O. George, thank you for joining me today. Uh, thank you, Justin. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, I did listen to your two um, prior podcasts, and uh, I know KJ, but I wasn't aware of the the, the racist aspects of Canadians. Okay, go no. back to um, self intro. I actually was uh, active since. China opening up to help American companies do business in China. And one of the things I was involved in, we actually had a mandate to bring in a complete semiconductor fabrication line into China. And, and that, was wow. so, that was so long ago that we were only, and because of the export control regulations, we were only allowed to bring in a three-inch line. Now, three-inch refers to the diameter of the wafer. And, and now three, we're into nanometers, right? Well, no, no. Nanometer is the width of the, the circuitry that um, is on okay. yeah, that you shine on each, each um, chip on the wafer. The, the three-inch is the size of the wafer. And when we were allowed to bring in three-inch three inch wafer, Four inch was already in the process of being obsolete into six inches, and of course now I believe we're we're up to twelve inches. The reason the diameter is important is because it takes about just about roughly the same kind of effort and energy to treat each platter, each you know wafer. So you can imagine that you can put in a lot more chips on a 12 inch than you can on a three inch. It's a, it's a you know, it's a squared yeah. function uh, type yeah. of uh, uh, economics. And then of course, as you reduce the size of the, of the line of the circuitry, the, the thing that we call nanometers now, um, yeah. that reduces the size of the, each of the chip. And that means you can produce a lot more chips for a given wafer. And all that figures in the economics and in the um, semiconductor industry, there's such a thing as called Moore's Law. Moore's was a founder of Intel, and he observed, it's, it's not a, a theoretical law, it's an empirical law. He observed that the technology doubles every 18 to 24 months. So what that means is that 
the chimp gets smaller, the circuitry gets finer, and if the circuitry is finer, everything happens faster, so it becomes more powerful, and and um, and that's how the semiconductor industry has been moving in that direction. And it's been, oh, I don't know, since um, probably late '60s that you know mm-hmm. it's doubling every two two years or so. You can imagine how fast this technology has. Um, Okay. That's evolved and has moved. Let's and take one step back here, because okay. I just just to give some context. So this semiconductor industry yeah. is running our computers, it's running our phones, it's running the internet in that yeah. sense. It's yeah. running basically the high tech, the highest tech, and the cutting edge of essentially the entire global economy. And so that's also, why it's important. and also the lowest tech. Your games, oh. your watches, <laughs> your ordinary, um, you know, plain vanilla ordinary things, your microwave oven, you know, nowadays right. under the hood in your car, you, can, you can't do anything now without right. some microprocessor or some chip or some memory is involved. So semiconductor is ubiquitous. And, um, and the semiconductor is the, basically the housing for yeah. the circuits that uh, and these electronic circuits that you are saying are getting uh, doubling in speed and efficiency yeah. every two years since the 1960s. Yeah, it's, it's, it, the circuitry has transistors, has this and that, and, and it calculates and makes functions. Um, it's, um, it's the thing that may Intel um, so successful because they were making the the chips that drives the computer from you know from way it's back inti- to, to Intel the latest generation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course Intel missed the boat when um, we start to move into computer on the phone. That's the okay. mobile phone, and this is where. Um, and that's we're now other, what around 2013, 2015, right. something like this. Yeah, even yeah, maybe. Well, again, I don't remember the exact year, but imagine the capability of the phone was doubling every, you know, right. every two months, every two years. Also, that's why you're you're up to iPhone eleven, and it's going to be iPhone twelve coming up. It, it's not just um, replacing a old generation for the sake of selling more phones. It, Which is what happens in automobiles and so more, on, planned obsolescence. Yeah, yeah. You, you, so that, and, and the mobile phone has really become a computer uh, in your pocket. Yeah. So, so okay. So, so, so anyway, that has gives me some technology background, even though I never direct, directly worked in the semiconductor industry, but I was very much involved in doing business with China and more my clients, virtually all my clients had something to do with technology because that's what Chinese was looking for. And this is so, beginning 78, 79 when Deng Xiaoping opened up China. So where's Huawei fit into okay. this right. and run Zhongfei? Huawei is a very unusual uh, company in my view. Because when the mobile phone was at a G3 and then G4, and that's a telecommunication protocol, that technology was firmly under in the control of Western companies like Qualcomm or like Arm in uh, UK at that time UK-based firm, and the Huawei's of this. So what are these G's? These are generations. It's it's yeah. It's a generation, and, and does that mean it's double? Like again, is that is that based on Moore's law or some other? Uh, it's idea? it's it's probably it's, it's comparable, but not exactly. If you want to go back to the generation of telecom, go back to the modem, three hundred um, three hundred uh, uh, you know BPS. This is when we were first started. We we had this modem, and that was a great revolutionary thing. It replaced okay. the fax machine. You, and that's you, the. Yeah, 
exactly. <laughs> and then you're on the internet, right? And and I was very much involved in the days when I first started out going to China. The way we communicate with our home office was through the mm -hmm. telex machine, and which means <laughs> after we finished working during the day, we actually had to go to the Beijing Dianbao Dalo, which is the telephone telegraph building, to punch out the tape. And then right. after you punch out the tape, you feed the tape into the machine, and and it goes, it sends it back to your uh, your home office, clickety clack. And the next best thing to sending the telex was the fax machine. Okay, and the fax machine, you know, is sending your image through a, a telephone line, and you didn't start not having to do that when you have the modem, but that modem. Today, you know, to that modem, let's see, it must be somebody needs to do a math, but we're 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 in the megabytes instead of three hundred. That shows you how much we have moved in terms of speed. Yeah, yeah. Well, my, you know, I'm um, grew up in the '80s, and yeah. we had a com I had a computer. Probably my first computer, my dad bought in the late 80s and it had a 30 megabyte hard drive you know and that yeah. was that was exciting you well know, that's 30 that was, megabytes that was, yeah that was darn good because the way i started it was a 10 megabyte you know seagate okay. C well, was selling 10 megabyte and then um, and 30 was considered uh, a big deal yeah and then for we had cga four color four color monitor uh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i I actually wrote. Okay. I actually wrote a business plan on the Mac 128, which was the first Mac that came out. But anyway, so okay, so each generation. Uh, so I've got 4G on my phone. I yeah, think right. Uh, and I and I my 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 router actually says 5G yeah. on it. So well, I guess there are some 5G things going on now. My guess is that. When your provider has 5G, your router is 5G ready. That's what okay. I my guess. Okay. Uh, but 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 I, I didn't finish explaining about Huawei. So yes. at that time, Chinese companies have to pay a royalty for the for the the core chip for the 3G and the 4G. You know, and and this is getting way beyond that I can explain competently. But Qualcomm made its money by licensing its technology. They 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 really didn't have to build any um, any network. They just licensed it, and other people build it. Huawei decided that they're going to leapfrog and spend their money developing 5G so that they don't have to pay that royalty to anybody. Uh -huh. So they were involved in develop while they were supplying 4G to, to the world, basically to 130 some countries, they are also getting ready to build the 5G. What year are we in now? 2017? Well, probably, they probably been developing 5G for 10 years. Oh, 10 years. Okay. Yeah, it's a okay. it's a big, heavy investment. And yeah. So, okay. So let's, so, should we talk a bit of the tech there? So I, here's my understanding. I've looked, I spent some time to prepare to talk to you about it. Yeah. But if uh, 4G is um, basically longer wavelength, so you can talk through walls, it has good penetration, but it's yeah. not as fast. And yeah. 5G you need more uh, routers, more, um, more of these sources of the, of the radio waves, but you can put much more data out over it. Well, 5G is supposed to be 100 times faster than 4G. Okay. And when you have 100 times faster than 4G, you are getting essentially instantaneous response. Right. And that's important because you want that for um, autonomous driving, for example. You know, right. if you have a car with a sensor and it senses danger, you need to be able to have the, the central unit, the brains of the unit, respond instantaneously. You can't wait for the thing to process and for the 
signal that comes yeah. in. That's one of the very important difference between a 5G and a 4G. Is the is the radio wave uh, radiation yeah. concern a, a concern? Like, well, is that you know, the, the electromagnetic radiation is what all the mobile phones uses. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 and the um, electromagnetic radiation moves at the speed of light. It's the same, same yeah. thing. There's a difference that I think most people are not aware of. There's two things about 5G to know before uh, about 4G, maybe three. The the five G can be can be in two different ends of the electromagnetic spectrum, okay. and unfortunately in the U.S. the more effective spectrum that you would prefer to have to use it's been um, monopolized by the military. The military is not oh. going to open that up for civilian use. Right. And that's called, uh, I think, sub six, and okay. that spectrum go through walls. It does people going across a one block to signal, whereas the other spectrum, which is left for the five G for the, in the U.S., does have all that those problems, which means you got to have more stations, you know. Cover giving you more uh, high density, higher density coverage, which is really a handicap. The other thing to know is that because the five G investment is huge, the American carriers and the uh, five the telecom equipment makers and whatnot, none of them were willing to make the investment because. Unless you can be guaranteed or assured of taking most of the pie, it's too risky. Mm-hmm. And that's why... Because, that's because why, the investment involves uh, such a dense network. Well, right? it, no, yeah. it's developing the technology because okay. it, there's no... Um, until Huawei said, we have 5G and introduced it, there's no roadmap on how to get to 5G. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Okay. And so consequently, at this point, there's not a single American company in the business. You got, you got Huawei, who is a couple years ahead of Nokia and Ericsson. And Ericsson Nokia's and Nokia Finland? Are, huh? Nokia's Finland? Yeah, yeah. And, and owned by Ericsson. And some, I think part, well, their handset business was sold to uh, Microsoft. Okay. But yeah, they're they're in Finland, and Ericsson, of course, is a Swedish company. But neither of them are there yet. And the other thing to to know, and this is to understand, is that Huawei has been successful in selling four G equipment around the world, including right. UK, including Germany, Canada. as yep. well as Canada. some of the third world countries. I think they've changed it recently, but you could buy it up until. Yeah. Mung's kidnapping. You yeah. could buy one in Canada too. Yeah. Right. But you, if you are already installed, and, and Huawei actually has five, 4G equipment in the US as well, they oh. were selling in the rural area because nobody else wanted to deal with, wanted to provide that service to the rural. It's, it, there's not yeah. enough density to make it profitable. But Huawei yeah. did it. And the advantage now is that it's, a lot simpler incremental cost wise to put 5G on top of a 4G network that's already in place. Uh-huh. So, so for Pompeo to go and tell whether it's UK, Germany, hey, you gotta go, you gotta give up on Huawei and go somewhere else. What he is not saying is that it's gonna cost you a lot of money and you're gonna have to figure out how to pay for it because we. Americans ain't going to put up a dime to get you the switch. Yeah. Is do you feel like this is a change in American capitalism? Like you've got a lot of experience with with yeah. American business because it does seem to me that it's much more about just sabotage and preventing other people from doing things now than it used to be. Yeah, you is, know, or was it um, always I I think we 
the Americans have always had this exceptionalism belief. We, we're exceptional. We're on top of the hill. We can tell you what to do. We, we certainly can tell the Canadians what to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but, but the Trump administration and Pompeo has taken a, a step, a huge step beyond um, what Americans yeah, used to do. Because we are actually now um, making the rules as we, as we go, you know? yeah. And I mean, this arrest of uh, uh, Meng Wanzhou was was uh, was unbelievable. If you look at the facts of the case, she she is accusing of lying to HSBC about doing business to Iran. Yeah, I, I don't know what any of that has to do with the United States. You right, know? I mean yeah. the U- U.S. unilaterally tore up the agreement they had with Iran, but what right. what does that have to do with Chinese companies? And then right. and then how how do you link that with the chief financial officer? If you're going to go after somebody, you probably should go after some operational manager or executive in charge of doing business with Iran. Yeah. But so, Meng is important because she's also the daughter of Yeah. Jung yeah. Fei. Can we talk about him? Yeah. Well, I, I am very impressed with uh, Ren Zhengfei from what I've seen and, and um, on the YouTube and read about him. And, you know, he, he's, a, he's a very reasonable guy, even though his company is enormously successful. He doesn't have the, the hubris of of of, um, uh, of a big shot CEO. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean he still says, "Boy, you know the U.S. technology is so far ahead of us. We got so much to do." And 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 um, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, of course, he said, "You know we're 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 ready to to, um, to tough it out. You know we we got chips stored away mm-hmm. for a couple of years." And uh, and in the meantime, we're going to go ahead and try to um, replicate the things that, that we're not going to be able to buy from the from the U.S. and, and so on and so forth. But he uh, All right. he yeah. he comes across as a very reasonable guy, and uh, and he says, so, you know, is, I would love to found- work with U.S. companies. This is the founder of Huawei, and he yeah. uh, he comes out of like, what's his background? Do you know much about? Well, he was at one point uh, an officer of the PLA. Okay. 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 And and this this happened what 30, 30 some years ago when when he was mustered up, and right. yet members of Congress in the U.S. Is, is basically using that to accusing him being a boogeyman. The evil doer wow, yeah, I mean, at the bidding of the PLA. Yeah. That's the American mentality, though, right? Like yeah, it's got to be but, some but, individual and, bad guy. Well, he has a perfect rebuttal. He says, "Look, you know, millions of PLA gets mustered out, and they go mm-hmm. and find other jobs that become part of the civilian. Some find companies, some go to work. You can't call them. You can't link them to the evil." Uh, evil army just because I was in the service at one point. Look at your United States. You have so many retired generals and other officers <laughs> in the private sector. Yeah. Are they are CNN. they doing the bidding of the de- Defense Department? We don't accuse well, them. Doing that. Yeah, they probably are. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. So George, look, you wrote this article. I think it was in the Asia Times, yeah, where you were talking about the um, technological changes. Uh, so there's this. So there's this thing about fabrication of the chips yeah. and then a foundry. Right. And then this company, SCMP, based in Taiwan, which no, T- basically TSMC. Said, oh, Ta- TSMC. Taiwan Semiconductor. Oh, I was thinking uh, the South, South China yeah. Morning Post. <laughs> I yeah. mixed it up. Yeah. Taiwan TSMC. Semiconductor Manufacturing Company or Corporation. So TSMC says, uh, you um, will make them for everybody. Yep. And then you can just focus on sending us the design. Right. You send us basically the the file, the right. the, the, the chip, the drawing, yep. and we'll make it. And then so that's that's enabled some kind of a another industrial revolution in in miniature. Absolutely. And, he, he, 
when when I describe you know the wafer size or the line width, as it gets as it doubles every two years, the equipment gets more and more expensive. Not necessarily double every two years, but the equipment gets very expensive. So, so um, maybe what twenty thirty years ago? I mean, TSMC started about. Let me think. Uh, yeah, before nineteen ninety, it was already getting to be so expensive to have your own fab fabrication that that's that was becoming an obstacle. If you want to go find venture capital because you have a good idea, venture capital are scared to death that if you're successful, you have to plunk down a billion or more just to get into the fabrication business. And this is where TSMC came along and said, okay, everybody, you concentrate in developing the device that's going to be the, the killer app for whatever it is that you have in mind. We will make it for you. We promise we will never go into business to compete with you. Your secret is safe with us. And, right. um, and we will continue to invest in the latest and most advanced equipment. So when they got started, it was about a billion dollars. Now, as you can see, even for a very small fab in Arizona, it's going to be twelve billion dollars. And not every, right. you know, and most companies are just not going to be able to play that game. So right now, you have like Samsung and Intel that have kept up with the technology and put in the billions of dollars. And even IBM got out of the business. HP got what's, out of the business. What's um, Foxconn got to do with this? Who? Foxconn? Is that just oh, a factory? Okay. Or? Foxconn, Foxconn is um, the low end of the technology business. Foxconn okay. supplies the labor to put the iPhone together, as an okay. example. They okay. do more than iPhones, but... So they provide us assembly line with zillions okay. of people on the assembly line, stick, okay. sticking the chip in, the resistor in, the case in, this and that and so on. And they right. do that very well. And they, okay. and they make their but, money by, you know, making but zillions. TSM, what, but what TSMC is doing is at a higher level. It's the higher opposite capital. end of the technology spectrum. Got it. Exactly okay. the opposite end. Right. But both, interestingly enough, both Foxconn and uh, TSMC uh, grew out of Taiwan. Oh, wow. Okay, so Taiwan. So now, this Arizona plant that yeah. the U.S. has been enticing yeah. Taiwan Semiconductor Company to go, this is a trap to try to get them. So now that they have a plant in Taiwan, the, I mean, in Arizona, the U.S. will be able to say, if you're doing business with us, then you can't do business with Huawei. Is that the idea? And, well, or, and or anybody else that we're yeah. sanctioning, but really the target is Huawei because yeah. there's no other. It, it's the other way around. They enticed TSMC to commit to building a plant in Arizona. And the day after they go back to TSMC and say, hey, by the way, we want you to cut your um, business ties with Huawei. Okay. And yeah. and because if they had gone beforehand to say we want you to cut your business time with Huawei, TSMC is gonna say, Hey, they they are one of our major business. We we do more than ten percent of our annual revenue with Huawei. What, what, what why would we you want to cut cut them out? So mm -hmm. so it was it's it's a it's sort of a almost like a double cross situation. However, to put everything in perspective, TS, TSMC has two plants inside China, okay? Right. Much larger than the one they're putting in Arizona. The, the Arizona plant represents less than 2% of the TSMC's total annual output, less than 2 The um, The two plants in uh, China are um, quite a few, quite a many times larger than the Arizona plant. The problem with the uh, China, the plants in China is that they are restricted to um, not the leading edge. They're probably one or even two generations behind. 
which is why um, a lot of the the Huawei's requirement is purchased not from the uh, China, the mainland plants, but from the TSMC plants in uh, in Taiwan. Now, right. just like the Foxconn plant in Wisconsin, after a much hullabaloo and photo op and so on, my understanding is that they haven't broken ground yet in yeah. Wisconsin. And same in Arizona. They're nowhere near. And they, they haven't even picked a site yet. And, and you know, you know it's, it's, it was a photo op. Is it also like a legal thing? Like if you've signed these papers, you're under our sanctions regime or is it something like, yeah, is it some yeah, kind of entrapment you know, that way? No, the sanction, the grounds for the sanction is, um, is dubious from a different point, different grounds. What, what the latest thing, you know, it, a year ago, the United States said, you can't sell chips to Huawei. Um, Okay. U.S. chips for Huawei, and um, and that was going to supposedly put Huawei to a grinding stop. Uh, stop. But the American suppliers that were selling all the chips to Huawei say, "Wait a minute, if we don't sell to Huawei, it's going to kill us." They were they uh-huh. they represent a huge part of our business. So then, U.S. De- Department of Commerce relented and said, "Okay." Continue to sell for another four months. I think uh, that was it. <laughs> and then we'll cut you off. Okay. <laughs> and, right. and of course, that really didn't work. And so the next step, right. and this is a dubious step, what they're saying now is that anybody that makes chips using U.S. equipment, semiconductor fabrication equipment by using U.S. technology, cannot sell the chips that they make to Huawei. Okay. Mm. And this is one area that U.S. have not lost control. The, the, most of the semiconductor fabrication equipment are still controlled by uh, U.S. companies. The only exception... So, so the equipment that is in the Taiwan semiconductor plants in Taiwan comes yeah. from or it's some of it comes from the US. It's virtually unavoidable. Any any is, fabrication yeah. line needs to have some American equipment, virtually unavoidable. Why is that? Because there's only it's the, the technology is controlled by a handful so of companies. Five yeah. at most. Three of them are US companies. What are so, what are their names? Uh, uh, one of them is um, Applied Materials. Okay. One is called Land Research. One is so called these are K- not KLA Tencore. Wow. Yeah. I've never they're heard not of any. The, they're not the brand name like General Motors and Ford. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Unless you're in Silicon Valley, you've probably never heard of those companies. So this is like machine tool, like super yeah. advanced machine tools and yeah. stuff like that. And they are very sophisticated. I mean, I, I tell you what, how sophisticated is the clean room where these things are made used to be such that it has to be dust free. Now it has to be micron free. You can't have anything floating around that could Ooh. contaminate the wafer while the wafer is being made. It's extremely, extremely challenging, and only a few companies can do it, and TSMC is one of them. So that means that if so does that so does that mean this is gonna work? In other words, if they do manage to exclude Huawei, yeah. is Huawei gonna be able to replace that capacity well here's 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 a number of possible outcomes and and you know none of us are privy to which way uh this is going to go okay one of the most sophisticated critical fabrication equipment is controlled by the dutch company asml okay i think ASML stands for Advanced Semiconductor Manufacturing Limited. 
something like that. But they have a technology that American companies do not. And that technology was actually cold developed with TSMC. Some guy at TSMC had figured out sort of the next generation um, method of what they call photolithography, which is the way to lay down the, the fine line on the, on the chip, on the microprocessor. And they worked it out with ASML. Now, one of the companies that has ASML and claim not to have any American technology in their production line is Samsung. So it's possible that Samsung can continue to supply chips to Huawei. Samsung being a Korean company. company. Yeah. And Samsung, of course, also make uh, mobile phones and competes with Huawei and competes with Apple in the mobile phone space. Okay. Yeah. But Samsung has a independent foundry business, which they started, right. oh, I would say more than 10 years ago. And they, they were willing to invest the billions necessary to get into and stay in that business. Is that something China can do right now? Like China it- does have a foundry called um, SMIC, Semiconductor Manufacturing I forgot what I stands for. Um, so they are a foundry service. Unfortunately, they are limited by the uh, technology that they can access. This is one area that American com- American government has done uh, from the get-go very early on, which, as I mentioned, when I was trying to bring a line into China, uh, they have restricted the Chinese access to technology to the in the semiconductor manufacturing area. So their equipment is always one or two generations behind the state of the art. And they will continue to be unless they develop their own. And frankly, up to now, it's you know it's it's human nature practically not to want to spend that kind of money to develop your own when you can go buy from TSMC, you can go buy from Samsung, or even from the fab that IBM used to have, and so on. It just, it just economically makes more sense to, to, to yeah. buy from somewhere else, which is really an example of the interlinkages of the economies between the U.S., China, and, and for that matter, the world. So maybe we should spend a little bit of time to talk about how stupid, how (laughs) dumb this is all becoming because what Trump and Pompeo and and the China bear, Steve Bannon and all, what they are insisting is to make sure it's a mutually assured destruction of the economies of both sides. The only thing that we don't know at this point, who is going to get destroyed first and how mm-hmm. devastating it's going to be for the, for the two sides. But let's look at the, let's look at the, 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 uh, uh, the weaknesses, if you will. Yeah. U.S. says, we're going to bring all the manufacturing back to this country. By, do, by stopping the trade war, by stopping the linkages with China, we're going to have our own manufacturing back. Well, so far, when they started this trade war a couple of years ago, so far, I think 3% of all the things that's in China has come back. Seven more percent has gone um, somewhere else, maybe Vietnam and places like that. But everybody else is staying in China. Why? Because the skills are there, the low cost is there, the supply chains that you need is, are there, and the market that they can serve is also there. So would it make sense for them to come back? Now, even if you force them to come back, the cost is going to be higher in the U.S. Yeah. The, um, 
Labor costs is definitely going to be higher. You're probably not going to be able to find the skill set that you need. You're going to have to struggle and try to bring in all the supply chain to also relocate uh, to the U.S. And then even if you succeed in all that and you start making products, you're still going to be able, have to be able to sell a good portion of it to China because otherwise yeah. your market size is severely limited. So, yeah. so for all those reasons, what they're trying to do makes no economic sense. So they're, they know that. They're, the idea is to get China to capitulate and make a new deal on, in, on worse terms for China. Right? They, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, Trump, Trump always thinks that he can do a better deal. You know? yeah. and, and, the prob- and everybody knows you give him a deal, he's going to tear it up and demand a better deal. It never yeah. stops. Yeah. That's, that's one of the problems dealing with Trump. Now, people like Navarro, who is a PhD economist, should know and understand this. But what Navarro doesn't know and understand is China. He, he, he has no idea what China is all about. He doesn't understand the culture. All he knows is he hates China. Right. And the reason he hates China was because the um, former chairman and founder of Nucor, which is a um, uh, you know, one of the leading steelmaking companies in the U.S. hates China. And he met Navarro and gave him a million dollars to do a, do a film, a, a pseudo-documentary called Death, uh, Death by China, and he also wrote a book by it. And, th- and that's how he came to prominence. Navarro became a China hater and baiter um, that's a career path because yeah. of that start. Yeah. And so and okay, so when you say mm-hmm. so when you say they don't know what China's about, what is, what do you mean? What is China about? Like what is it that they don't well, understand? China is no excuse the, the impression uh, the uh, expression just think China is no Canada. Yeah, all right. That's fair. China <laughs> is not going to jump because Washington says jump, right? Uh, and okay. and China is not doing seventy percent of its business like Canada is with U.S. Right. In fact, China is doing more business, a lot more business with the rest of the world than they are doing with with the U.S. I think U.S. accounts for less than twenty percent of its business, as opposed to seventy percent with Canada. So so if if the if this whole thing goes yep. really badly and yep. TSMC is excluded then China will probably just try to make a different deal with Samsung or develop its own technology from come from behind and and just make it work right well, I mean yeah they will have to do both in yeah. other words you know, you know I'm one of the things I was again very impressed with uh, Rin Zhenfei is that he made it a policy to never sole source anything that he right. needs for his products. So there's always a dual source or more for all right. the critical components that he needs. So this shutting off of TSMC to Huawei, it's, it's going to be a temporary setback, but it's not going to kill Huawei. Right. But it will... Um, uh, cause them to, to rethink and redo certain things. and uh, um, But making a deal with Samsung while they're trying to develop their own capabilities, both are going to have to go concurrently. And, and, and I, frankly, they probably, China probably have been doing this already, trying to develop fabrication uh, technology, but they're just going to have to accelerate the, um, the process and even so, my guess is it still will take some time. You know, who knows right. how much time? Two, three years maybe or more. Right. Because it's a, it's a very formidable piece of technology. You can't just go and reverse engineer or, or copy. Right. <coughs> and, and I don't know if... I don't know if you want to talk about this because yeah. I didn't. Uh, I didn't warn you, but you know, what is the role of the in, the U.S. kind of intellectual property regime? Because I know that was that's long been a 
a source of anger by the U.S., which the accusing China of not respecting that, all of those patents uh, and whatnot. So, like, is that part of what's is that part of this these setbacks? Like, well, the yeah, it's it's the theft of IP is rapidly becoming. Uh, a blame China, uh, just yeah. like blaming China for the COVID nineteen. Right. It's it's greatly greatly exaggerated. Right. In in the case of Huawei, for example, Ren Zhengfei says, "How can I be stealing your IP when I my IP is so far more advanced than yours? You know, I've got what you don't have. So where do I where did I steal this? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So if you right. want to dig down deep in it. Yeah. It's possible that Cisco could say, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you did steal something, steal something from us." And well, there's again, that famous um, that famous quote by um, in in Steve Jobs's biography, right, where apparently Steve Jobs was yelling at Bill Gates for stealing no, the mouse was, or something. Was, uh, yeah, I think I think Steve Jobs yelled at a lot of people, but he yelled at Eric <laughs> Schmidt too. <laughs> and then Google Bill Gates, for, 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 Bill Gates, for, for developing. Yeah, no, not um, Steve Jobs did. He yelled yeah. at, he yelled at Eric Schmidt because Google came out with Android, which was a um, uh -huh. iPhone OS alike, right. uh, which right. became a very formidable uh, competitor. Yeah. And, you no, know, so with with the mouse, uh, Jobs was yelling at Gates, and Gates apparently said something like, "Look, you know, you think we stole from you, but the way I see it is, you went in to rob our uncle Xerox, and yeah. you found that I had already taken the TV." <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah, Xerox had had a uh, had a, a huge tech center in Palo Alto, and they were using the mouse there. And Steve Jobs thought I was a you know, damn good idea. So I don't know. He may have stolen the idea, but he may not actually have stolen the design or or, right. or anything like that. They, you know, and again, I guess once you once you see how a mouse works, it's probably fairly easy to figure right. out how to make it work. You know, yeah. which is very different from the um, the semiconductor chip business. Right. But Renton Fei's explanation of the dispute with Cisco was that of the millions of lines that Cisco had in theirs versus ours, there's one part that was identical. And we think it was identical because that came in from an open source and not because we copied from Cisco. But mm -hmm. then we decided it was, it was more sensible and economical to settle rather than fight, fight that down to the bitter end. So that was his explanation. But has China been stealing IP from the U.S.? I think, by and large, that's true. You know, right. especially you, you in, have to, you have to, yeah, otherwise, especially in the PC software business area and so on. Um, there's there's a, a fair amount of copying and ripping off that took place, but right. that was again maybe thirty years ago. And more and more now, US, Chinese companies have IP that they need to protect, and and they're less need to or ready to steal from the U.S. So there is this mutual um, non-infringing, if you mutual right, non-aggression right. pact, if you will, uh, that is developing in the IP area. But the Pompeos of this world finds it very convenient to yeah. continue to say. We object to everything you do because you are a you steal our IP. But but in actual fact, what the U.S. wants to do, and and this dates back to, you know, Obama, George W., even Clinton, is is this regime change business? Right. We want we the United States want everybody to be a democracy. Hopefully not like us, but be a democracy of some kind. <laughs> yeah, which means we'll influence. We'll influence who wins yeah. the election. And, who and, and 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 there's this idea. Well, if you listen to Banyan, for example, which is another the guy who totally totally doesn't know China, 
Bannon says the Chinese people are so unhappy under this authoritarian uh, leadership. We need to free them up. We need to give them democracy. Well, actually, when you go, when you look at Pew Research going into China, eighty percent or more of the people say, "Hey, we love it here. We like the way it's going. We, we we're happy with going. If we don't get the vote, so what? We don't go to we we don't get to go to the to the to the Tiananmen Square and get on the soapbox and make a speech. So what? You know, that's not where our priorities are. But that that apparently is the priority yeah, of a Nancy Pelosi or a Chad yeah, no, Schumer. The right, to, the right to protest is sacred in America, as you can see in the past couple of weeks, and yeah. the, the right to elect uh, from well, the identical uh, platforms of the two identical parties is also... Yeah, when, when the Hong Kong uh, protests turn into violence and riot and, and the burning of all the metro stations, Nancy Pelosi was quoted as saying, wow, Shocked. what a lovely... Uh, what a lovely site. It's a beautiful site. So now she can see the beautiful site in Minneapolis or, or Oakland or somewhere else. She doesn't have to go to Hong Kong to see it. Yeah, yeah. So so now, okay, we've now been talking for about an hour <laughs> almost. <laughs> so now I think we're ready to to see where the kidnapping of Meng Wanzhou fits into this whole scheme. Yeah. Uh, so how do you how do you see this? Because for me, it's like a combination of industrial aggression and geopolitical aggression. It's um, more but, geopolitical. Yeah. The industrial is probably just a pretense. Okay, tell me. the The industrial is that, I guess, in a way, you're you're right. Industrial in a sense, they're hoping that by capturing the daughter, that they can uh, strong arm the uh, the founder into some sort of uh, uh, concession, uh, conciliation or whatever. But it's really a geopolitical. I mean, U.S. has never um, gotten off the posture that we can tell anybody what to do, Yeah, any country what to do. And we are, we're going to do, prevail over China by hook or crook at whatever cost. Yeah. And it's. I, I think it's going to be important that American people understand that that whatever cost can be extremely, extremely painful, and no. um, and hopefully they'll know this by November when the election time comes. So there's um there's a maybe the last thing we can talk about is just uh, another article you wrote yeah. years ago actually about right. like the back channels because. There, I've, I saw something the other day that Pompeo was going to go talk to China, meet yeah. some Chinese officials, and try to cool things down yeah. after having heated it up for a year. Right. But like, um, there, you've you've described something that happened in the '90s or in the '60s, was it? Oh, it was the '90s. The, it was the '90s. It was the '90s where the yeah. Chinese were actually trying to inform the U.S. Yeah. about what was happening. Can you why? Why don't you talk about that? Okay. Okay. Well. In the late 80s, actually, um, there was a Cox Committee in the, U in the Congress. The Cox Committee held a series of hearings on the insidious presence of China. Huh. It's no different then to what it is now. There is this China-bashing faction in the U.S. that has never gone away. And the Cox Committee... Back at least 100 years, yeah. Yeah, Cox Committee was as an exemplification of that. And in that, they were accusing uh, China of stealing secrets uh, from, uh, and that, you know, that Chinese companies, um, in, there are tens of thousands of Chinese companies in the U.S. operating as storefronts, and all they're doing is spying on us. And there was a, even a guy from FBI by the name of Paul Moore, who is supposed to be an expert on China. And he concocted a theory called a grains of sand uh, practice oh. of espionage. Have you heard of grains of sand? <laughs> I, can, I can imagine <laughs> where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> no. He says, you got to look out for all these Chinese in the United States. They are, their loyalty belongs to the home motherland, and they oh. will collect every little bit of information they can get hold of it and send it to Beijing. 
And the go. implication without actually saying the stupid conclusion, which was, when Beijing, what does Beijing do with all these little tidbits of information sent in from all these, quote, loyal Chinese Americans to Beijing? You put it in the supercomputer in the, in the basement of the, of the Zhongnanhai, <laughs> you feed all that stuff in and you crank it out and you end up with a design of a multi-head, multi-head missile. You know, does that make any sense to anybody? (laughs) By relying on these grains of sand, you don't have to have sex. You don't have to have money. You don't have to have any prestige or anything. Just rely on all these tidbits of stuff coming back. Anyway, that was the mentality of that era, which led to the uh, arrest of Wen Ho Li, who was incarcerated for 10 months in solitary confinement, at the end of which he had to plead guilty to uh, downloading uh, something in the computer that was against the rule in exchange for the time served. And the ruling judge, Parker, even apologized to him by saying, on behalf of the United States government, I have to apologize for the way we treated you, so on and so forth. During that time, one of the most interesting development that most people don't know about was that at Los Alamos, where Wen Ho Lee works, there's a guy by the name of Danny Stillman. Danny Stillman has a science background, but he was in charge of gathering intelligence on what China is doing in the nuclear bomb, hydrogen bomb development, and so on. And lo and behold, he had been to China nine different times, visited the test facilities and development facilities and everything that Chinese was doing in the nuclear weapon development. And when he came back, it was, um, I think, 1986, 87, he wanted to write a book about what he found out. Okay. And that was about the time of the Cox Committee, about the time when Holy was arrested and all that stuff. And so the Clinton administration would not allow him to publish the book. Wow. Very simple reason. You know, we've been accusing China of stealing all these things, <laughs> but Chinese is letting him see everything to publish. Yeah. Now, this whole thing was written up in John Pomfret's book, The Beautiful Country and uh, Middle Kingdom. He reported all this, but his conclusion was when Stillman was ready to publish the book, he, he had a, tab, a tabulation of all the test protocols the Chinese were using for their um, nuclear weapon testing. And that was the one thing the Chinese asked him not to print. But he went ahead and included it and printed it anyway. (sighs) So I said to John Pomfret, I said, hey, John, you really missed out something. Why didn't you explain how did Dan Stillman get invited to China for nine different times to see their nuclear weapon development? Isn't that an essential piece of information that you failed to write and report about? Mm -hmm. He shrugged his shoulder. Okay, so that's why I wrote a review in Amazon saying John Pomfret's book is totally biased, which I think it is. Yeah, because the important thing that's missing in that report is that there were some Chinese scientists that came to the U.S. to attend American Physical Society meeting, and they found out who Dan Danny Steelman was, and they went to visit him in Los Alamos and specifically invited him to go and visit these facilities. He was very surprised, but he accepted. And over a period, I don't know how many years, he actually went there nine different times, took notes and, every, and everything, and visited test facilities, lab development, so on and so forth. So, you, so here's, the, here's the reason that Americans just don't get it, uh, Justin. Yeah. The Chinese wanted Pentagon and the U.S. government to know what they're doing. Right. It's important and- 
Yeah. If you if you have any familiarity with the uh, uh, Art of War written by Sun Tzu, you know, yeah. it's important for your adversary to know what you're capable of because you don't want them to miscalculate and make a mistake. Yeah. And you don't need you don't need Sun Tzu. You just need Doctor Strangelove, right? I mean, they, they blew up the world because they didn't know that. But, but you, you know, see, yeah, that, and, and see, China also, yeah. It's it's so culturally different between the Western, as represented by the American attitude, and the Eastern, as represented by the Chinese. You know? Yeah, we we in the United States believe in overwhelming power, overwhelming military. That's why we had to spend $700 billion a year because we want to make sure that if we go to war with you or with Russia or whoever, we're going to be able to blast you to smithereens many times full, over. Full spectrum dominance. Huh? Full spectrum dominance, they call yeah. it, right? Okay. Years. Well, China is, has always been saying, it's important for us to maintain a viable second strike capability. We just want to make sure that if you start something, we promise that we're never going to start the first strike, but if you start something, we want to make sure we're still going to be able to hurt you. And, and that comes from the understanding that when we are 1.4 billion people and you are 300, you know, <laughs> proportionally speaking, um, we're 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 apt to hurt you more than you can hurt us. That yeah. would be the, their thinking and their attitude. Whether that's true or not, you know, hopefully we'll never find out. We we'll never get to that get to that yeah. point. But you know, but they don't go around telling anybody that you have to do what you have to do. They don't tell yeah. anybody that you got to be more like us. Um, yeah. They they work. You know, you can talk. We can talk about the Belt and Road sometime. But that's a collaborative, cooperative approach rather than do as I say uh, or else type approach. Yeah. They want a multilateral world. Exactly. That's the goal. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a, there's a neoconservative group in Washington after the Cold War, after the USSR dissolved. They basically say now's our chance to be the hegemon, to rule the world, to be the number one country. And they set about to do this. And, and to to and, and China is the, the obstacle. Project. Yeah. The, the project obstacle. for a new American century. Yeah. Yeah. Even though they they, they don't realize um, the American century is done. Yeah. The I think where the China made a mistake is in two thousand eight. When the financial collapse of, uh, uh, in um, the, the mortgage crisis and credit default yeah. and all that, and, and the Wall Street near collapse, that's when Hu Jintao, I think, came over and said to the U.S., we'll hey, you. You, you, we always looked up to you as the number one country, with, you know, but turns out your feet is made of clay, and <laughs> we, we're coming out of this much better than you are, so... We think we think we should be more. We should be treated more as a peer, and to have more collaboration rather than to be big brother to a little brother. And that may have yeah. been a mistake because I think the U.S. Yeah. took it very badly. Yeah, and it's also. I mean, it's not just the rhetoric, right? It's also like a lot of the. I understand what happened during the financial crisis is that China basically helped bail the American economy out. Yeah, I mean, time. well, they they also did a much better job of uh, dealing with it. This is where they invested in the high speed rail. They built bridges. They, you know, they did. They the deal. they had to yeah. do something, but they did it in a constructive way. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, thank you, George. This this does answer a lot of my questions about what what the technological context and the economic context was for all of this. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think we, should, I, yeah, maybe we could come back and talk Belt and Road, but for me, this was also ultimately about how to understand this particular kidnapping by Canada. So, uh, you know, understanding Huawei and 5G and Ren Zhengfei and yeah. 
that context it's a, was it's really a, helpful. It's a fairly desperate, I think it's a fairly desperate tactic on the part of the United States. And, and I don't think that anybody but Pompeo and Trump would have resorted to this. I don't think this is something that Obama or even George W. or some of the others would have resorted to because it's unprecedented. Yeah. And, and 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 it serves to tell the the world basically that um America you know America's just isn't just a ordinary bully it's a bully <laughs> bully first class it's, yeah. it's it's you know it's unprecedented i can't i can't believe that they actually try to do this and of course um i would be very fearful of um uh, more uh, men if she ever does get extradited to the U.S. because there's no way she could get a fair trial. Yeah, no way. No, of course not. All right, not, George. Thank you not, so much. Oh, not at least sorry. not during the Trump administration. Maybe no, she can no. be laid until after November. <laughs> Maybe that's the goal. Yeah. All right, George. Thank you okay. so much. All right. Okay. Good talking to you. And thanks. 